Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 266, Moonquakes. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today we're going to focus our attention to what's shaken almost a quarter of a million miles out in space. I have been lucky enough to have lived all of my life in parts of the United States that are not prone to earthquakes. Haven't avoided hurricanes, but no earthquakes. On top of my limited knowledge of quakes of the Earth, it seems that I recall having been taught that Earth's only natural satellite, the Moon, is a dead body that doesn't have any quaking. Well, it turns out that's wrong. The Moon does have seismic activity, ground motion. And since we're going back there in a few years, we'd best learn all we can about it. Today, we're going to do Intro to Moonquakes with lunar seismologist and planetary scientist Dr. Carrie Nunn. Nunn has a doctorate in seismology from the University of Cambridge, which she followed with a one-year postdoc at Durham University in the UK, then a fellowship at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, and then another at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory where she is now a research scientist using seismology to study the structure of the moon, and she's currently involved in a number of NASA missions that are rewriting what little I thought I knew about lunar structure. So, let's get educated. Here we go. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. For those of us of a certain age, as they say, it was once a scientific fact that the moon was a dead body. There was no life there, no water, no air, not even any vibrations except when it got hit by a meteor digging a, a new crater. Carrie Nunn, when did science start to realize that there actually was seismic activity on the moon? Well, that's that's really interesting because it's it's not really until Apollo 11, and even then, uh, nobody's quite sure because what happened with Apollo 11 was they took a seismometer, and it had these crazy signals that just nothing we have ever seen on Earth. Um, the signals uh, they last for over an hour, even for something really small. Uh, they can, um, they, you know, they rise very slowly and they decay even more slowly. They, uh, they, they just almost like like a sound wave, but for an hour. They just like this, wow. this crazy, crazy signal. And so, it's like what? So, of course, one of the first questions that they had was, had they just set it up wrong? You know, that they'd done something, you know, something wrong with the seismometer or the way <laughs> it was installed, or even the way it was digitized. That just something went wrong. Um, and so they had many, many signals like this. Um, some of the they did see some uh, the footfalls. Of Buzz Aldrin, that's kind of on on the short period seismometer. But they said that they see these much longer signals on the on the mid period seismometers. And so yeah, they they just look crazy. And it actually wasn't until uh, they they deliberately crashed uh, the the spent lunar ascent module from Apollo 12 a few months later when they they they, they see something so similar to these kind of long natural signals. They're like, oh okay, you know we know. We know that something can, you know, that far away uh, and that, that kind of size can create a signal that's really similar. 
Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where they, they, they began. And one of the first things, I guess, was that one of the other things which they would have considered was that maybe the sources themselves just take an hour. You know, there's something, maybe there's some kind of rumbling or mm. some kind of volcanic tremor or something. But, uh, but they realized with this impact that that's not true and that you can just make it, you know, you can impact uh, something that's, you know, over two tons into the lunar surface. You know, the impact's really quick, but it generates this really long signal. We're gonna, and then kind of from there, sorry, carry on. Well, I was saying we, we can, we're going to get back to that in a second, I think. Um, I want to ask you how you got interested in this in the first place. Now, you're talking about something that happened uh, more than 50 years ago. So yeah. the, the, the data, the, the, the knowledge has been around. How did you become interested in, in seismology and, and studying the moon? Ah, yeah. So I was I was fascinated by the Apollo missions themselves, and particularly the geology of it, and the way that it was a very science-driven mission, um, and had been fascinated for a long time. But it's actually the InSight mission to Mars that that was kind of you know getting you know they were they were preparing the InSight mission to Mars, which is a seismic mission to to study Mars. And as I was finishing my PhD, I was looking around for something to, you know, to get involved in that. Mm-hmm. And but I really wanted to do something very data driven. And so the obvious choice was the moon because there were, you know, over thirteen thousand signals, um, and they, you know, they sit there in the archives. So for a data driven scientist, it was it was a kind of obvious. Uh, next step. When you say 13,000 signals, you mean like recordings yeah. of 13,000 seismic events? Yes, of Ooh. all different types. Okay. Um, so we'll perhaps get into that later. But yes, different types and even more of, um, you know, thermal events. So yeah, there's there's many, many, many signals to, to look at on the moon. Uh, and the, the, the seismometers ran for, uh, some of them are for over eight years. So that was that was kind of where I wanted to, uh, you know, that was where I wanted to focus. And so what I did was write a fellowship application to apply some new techniques, which we use on Earth, uh, to try to get, what I wanted to do was get a depth profile. So basically look at how the, how the, the how things change as you go down into the surface, from the surface down. Right. Um, and then... Uh, unfortunately, that technique didn't work. It was partly because the the, the seismic uh, phases that we used to do this on Earth just get scattered out on the moon. Uh, but by then, I was hooked, and I just fascinated by the way that the moon just doesn't behave like Earth. Right. Interesting. Uh, tell me about that that progression in your academic career, because uh, as as people can hear, you're not from around here. Not. In California, no. not from California or from Texas. Not from California. No, no, I'm not. No, I, I'm originally from the UK, and I did a PhD in seismology in uh, in Cambridge, and then I did I, d- I did some more work on terrestrial seismology. But then after that, I started looking at the moon, uh, and then I did that in Munich mm-hmm. before moving to Dubai. And what were you involved in in lunar seismology when arriving at JPL? Yes, yes. So, so that was you know it was actually I got hired to look at uh, non Mars seismology. So the moon was perfect, and some of my colleagues also work on the icy moon. 
So yeah, I, I, that's what I did right from the start. Okay, now if I if I can back us up a, a bit, it sounds like what you're saying is that that nobody really had any insight that there were any moonquakes until the first instruments were put there on Apollo eleven, right? Yeah. So what what they did guess that there were were meteoroid impacts. Uh, you know, the meteoroids. You know, they have to hit the moon. There's, there's no atmosphere, so nothing slows them down. So they have to hit the moon. And we can see, obviously, see huge amounts of evidence of them hitting the moon. So they knew they were there. Uh, and they also guessed that there would be thermal quakes, that as the, you know, such a large temperature variation on the moon, that, that the rocks just crack and break. And the, you say you call that a thermal quake? A thermal quake, yeah. So they're quite, uh, you know, they're, they're quite common. Uh, on the moon, uh, especially at sunrise and sunset, and so they kind and, and I think they they expected those. Uh, I don't think anybody really knew whether there would be something internally, um, but yeah, it wasn't until they. And of course, the other thing is they weren't sure how much noise there would be, whether there would be, uh, you know, whether the noise uh, of of everything happening would mm. be higher than the individual signal. So they didn't know that either. But I think that, you know, no, nobody was particularly surprised that they saw meteoroid impact, but the cops didn't expect how, you know, how they would look. In those cases, though, aren't we talking about uh, vibrations or, or whatnot that are the result of outside forces, meteorites hitting yes. it or, or yes. the, yes. the temperature changing it, but, but not generated from within the moon, if, yes. if you will, naturally? Exactly. Yeah. So, so those are the expected ones, and then, uh, and then internally. So they they started. Um, so again, it, it kind of came quite gradually. But when they went to, uh, they added another station. Then they can see that the, that some of the signals arrive at roughly the same time, and in order to get the signals to fit, they have to be quite far away. And then later, when they have Apollo fifteen, they can actually get three of these. Uh, you know, that, that the signals are being picked up in three stations, and then later with Apollo 16, they can get four stations. So then they start to work out that some of these signals are actually coming from inside them. Um, mm. And they're, they're pretty common, um, and they seem to be tidally triggered. So at certain phases of the tidal cycle, that's when they, when they come. And we're talking about the tides on Earth. Yeah, so it's, it's the moon's uh, response to as it goes around the Earth, and of course, it it also interacts with the sun. So you have a, you have a different tidal cycle uh, as you go through through the month. Well, it's interesting. We, we we're taught that the tides on Earth are uh, in in some ways are impacted by the moon. Now, to think that the tides are are also impacting seismic activity on the moon. Yes, yes, they do. You know, we we have uh, you know the moon smaller than us, but you know we we have a we have an an impact on the moon, and it's, it's obviously a bit short on water. So there's no mm-hmm. they don't have that kind of tide, but yeah, right. there's, there's body tides like within the moon itself that uh, are changing. And a moment ago, you talked about how on subsequent Apollo missions, they were able to get readings from multiple stations. Are you talking about seismographic equipment that was left behind at each of the Apollo landings? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So those those were still operating 
after the astronauts left. Yes, yeah, that, that's where we get the majority of the data from. They weren't turned off until 1977. So with, each, uh, with most of the missions, they added new seismometers, which were doing this kind of listening. And yeah, they, uh, by the time, you know, when, once Apollo 16 is there, most of the time we have four stations operating. Wow. Now, how much of, of science on Apollo missions was aimed at studying lunar seismology as opposed to other kinds of science that that folks were interested in? Yeah, I think that the you know one of the really cool things about the Apollo missions was how science driven it was, and geophysics is really important. But there are actually other instruments and other you know, other experiments going on at the same time. And of course, because they're going on at the same place, you can, you know, work, you know people can work together to get certain you know, aspects from, from those data. So they were, they were measuring the magnetic field. Uh, they measured uh, the heat flow coming from, you know, the center of the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they measured the solar winds as well. So there were various experiments um, the, the seismic experiments were really important, I think, because it was it was kind of one of the main focuses. But it, but still, there was really other cool stuff, and of course, the geology and the observations that the astronauts made, and then the sample returns were were really important in terms of Apollo science. Right. Well, they were the first people to go there, and scientists want to know everything and I'm, I'm sure yeah. they were fighting with each other to get their different kinds of experiments. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, there definitely were. There was a lot of grumbling, I think, about, oh, no, <laughs> we haven't done this, we haven't done that. But yeah, I think overall, the, the overall focus of being, you know, very science focused is perhaps a little bit of a surprise, certainly to me, that, you know, you think of it as, you know, a human exploration mission, whereas, mm-hmm. A huge part of the human exploration was to gather data for for science. Right, right. Now, um, talk about some of the the different ways that the the Apollo missions gathered data. You you made reference before to uh, crashing one of the uh, components <laughs> of an Apollo that into is the, the surface. I want to do again. Well, okay, <laughs> but uh, I mean, did did they just uh, you know put seismographs on the surface and then and and uh, get the readings of whatever happened to happen or did they what what other kind of purposeful things did they do to, to generate some readings yeah so they yes they they crashed the uh the Saturn four boosters into the surface they crashed the lunar ascent module uh they also they did some active experiments where they had grenades um where luckily uh i think the grenades were detonated after the astronauts left. But they, you know, so they're kind of, you know, they're looking at, because they're generating a signal and you can see for, you know, like a kilometer or something into the surface, you get a really nice seismic reading from, from, from doing that. And then much smaller ones where they were kind of like a little thumper, um, which, uh, and that's really small. It's like on a kind of 10 meter scale. Hmm. But uh, and that gives you a reading into like the first one or two meters of the surface. So you've got this kind of you've got this range of you know from like one to two meters around a kilometer, 
and then right into the depths of the moon, um, some of the you know the deep moon quakes themselves might be seven or eight hundred kilometers deep. Wow. So you're getting this range of of, of observations from you know d- different ranges, um, different timescales, uh, which which was really helpful for trying to make a picture of the whole moon. Well, that leads into the basic question, I guess. After all of the research and, and done on these Apollo missions and the data gathered over the course of the several missions, what can we say we learned about the moon's geology and, and the seismic activity there? Yeah, so I think probably the most important thing is to do with the structure of the moon, that the moon has a core, a mantle, and a crust. And the crust uh, be probably around, you know, 13 kilometers on average, like that kind of thickness. Okay. Um, so, and then the core would be maybe 380 kilometers. So what you also get is, you know, you, 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 the mantle's a bit different from us. Uh, you don't get it layered in quite the same way, and there's probably a partial melt layer. But it's kind of, it's looking somewhat similar to the Earth. But what was obvious right from the start, I think, is that you have this very important scattering region. And what happens is that you, because the meteoroids have been bombarding the surface for four billion years, right? You get um, you what you get is this very fractured surface. And there aren't processes like on Earth to kind of close up those fractures. So what you get is a, a, a region probably around the edge, maybe possibly as much as 100 kilometers, where it just, you just kind of, if you get a seismic wave in there, it will kind of stay and bounce around and bounce around until it eventually it, it attenuates and, and there's, it, there's nothing left of it. Right. And that's what we see, right? You know, the, 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 the seismograms I was trying to describe you can't have a seismogram that goes on for an hour unless you have something like this. And that's perhaps one of the biggest differences between the moon and the Earth is that this setting and region is really, really important. Um, and yeah. Is it correct to say, and I'm trying to characterize it in my head, is it like the, the, uh, the seismic waves are echoing around and the fact that they continue for an hour is what's so surprising? Yeah, I think so. I think what what we think is that, uh, that there's like some kind of space to the scattering layer. And so they're being sent back up to the surface. And so they, they're not being lost in the whole moon. They're kind of being stuck in this surface layer. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the process you describe of it echoing around is, is quite important. That's, that's, that's interesting. Now, we've been hearing lately about how uh, people who are studying some of the samples brought back from the moon are learning new things by applying modern techniques to examining the actual uh, samples that were brought back to Earth. Has subsequent study of the the seismic data led to any new discoveries? Yeah, I think so. And I think so. There really was some, you know, heroic effort to preserve these data. That you know, it involved kind of searching in old garages and various other <laughs> things. There was, you know, some of it. Some of it got preserved correctly at the 
you know, in the, the data archive, but there was various bits that got were missing. And so, but, but that's, that's kind of really important because, as you say, you can have new techniques, um, you know, 20 years in the future. And so, yeah, that I think um, some of the work that we have, have on the lunar core comes out of that, you know, sort of 20, 30 years after the, effect, after the data were collected that we managed to process mm-hmm. these very tiny signals from the lunar core. So, yes, I think, you know, knowing where the lunar core is, uh, is, is one of those things. I think right now the, the biggest, um, the most exciting thing is, is using machine learning techniques because you can, uh, it, it's a lot easier for a machine to read 13,000 samples uh, than it is for a person. And so there are a new, um, we're actually getting some new information about the time um, of some of the thermal moonquakes, which came from actually from Apollo, from from the landers, but sometimes the landers are having these kind of strange signals, and we're learning about when they happen, so that we don't make the same mistake, basically, and have our data contaminated by uh, thermal noise. So, yeah, definitely, and and I don't think that that process is over yet because, you know, these these data were collected on the near side of the moon. Some future missions will be, you know, in different parts of the moon. So we may right. be able to use comparisons. Obviously, they won't, they won't be simultaneous, but we still think that there'll be useful information by comparing the original samples to the new ones. You referenced there that uh, data from landers. Do I understand that these are landers that have landed since Apollo? Uh, no. So we... Um, the there's, there haven't been any seismic missions since uh, Apollo 17 left okay. in 1972, uh, but there are some there are some missions like in progress uh, that may be landing really soon. You know, I, like the next two years. So the um, the Indian Space Agency is is taking Chandrayaan three, uh, hopefully in 2023, um, to the to the lunar south pole. Um, Changi 7, which is a, a Chinese mission, will land again near the South Pole, hopefully in 2024. And the Far Side Seismic Suite, which is a, a NASA mission, is due to land on the far side in 2025. So that one's going to Schrodinger Crater. So hopefully there will be some new data in the next you know, three or four years. Well, and that's a good thing. Let's talk about some of the the new missions that are coming, uh, particularly ones you're working on. That would be the the Far Side Seismic Suite is one of them, right? Yeah. So the Far Side Seismic Suite is a NASA mission. Uh, It's due to go to Schrodinger Crater, which is on the far side of the moon. Uh, It's quite far south. And this will be the first seismic mission to the far side. So that's something which is, is quite exciting. Yeah. And it's um, there's going to be a couple of seismometers. It's part of NASA's commercial program. So it, And it will sit on the deck of one of the new commercial landers. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's a, like, it's a fairly small mission um, with these two seismometers to a single place, but somewhere we've never been before. Is that the, the the particularly new and exciting part of it? Is that the area where it's going? Yeah. So it's 
It's going to Schrodinger Crater, which is uh, it's it's 3.8 billion years old, which is quite I don't know, yeah, <laughs> quite young for the moon. <laughs> um, it's a uh, it's 150 kilometers in diameter. It's really beautiful, and it has a a peak ring structure. So it's one of those. Uh, craters with like a concentric ring in the middle and then uh, a crater rim around the outside. And it looks a little bit, it's, it's got a lot of similar similarities with Chichilov, which is the dinosaur-killing crater on Earth. Mm-hmm. But of course, on the moon, it's much better preserved. You know, that there's, it, it's, it, you know, it's still sitting there. Um, so it's kind of something of a, a museum piece. So yeah, we're really excited about you know, going there and looking at the crust there. You said this is supposed to launch in 2025. And uh, yeah. how, how long does it take to get there? How long will it be working, gathering uh, gathering data? Uh, I don't know exactly how long. It, it is, it's not, you know, the moon's not that far in space right. terms. Um, and I, the, the mission, the nominal mission is four months. Uh, so yeah, and one of the cool things about the technology of this is that we've got we've got something to have it make sure that it works through the night, so that we can take it, we can use it both both day and night, which means that we get a continuous uh, record of like four months. Now, being being on the far side of the moon, how do you get the data home? Uh, well, we'll be able to store it part of the time on the lander, and we'll have a relay satellite which will. Um, but that will be sort of further behind the moon, so okay. it will be able to send uh, send the data back to Earth. Are you using some new sorts of equipment that you you hope is going to get you newer insights? So the the big difference that we have we, we have a, a slightly more sensitive seismometer. Uh, we have uh, one seismometer that that measures in the vertical dimension. And that one's a bit more sensitive than Apollo, so that's really exciting. We, you know, Apollo, uh, the Apollo missions were recording. Sometimes it, it looks quite flat; you can't really see very much, um, and that's because you just, you know, the, the seismometer isn't sensitive enough to to oh. do what you what you what you need it to do. So we're going to be a bit more sensitive. That's really cool. We're also the Apollo missions were very coarsely digitized. You know, this is you know this really is fifty or sixty year old technology, uh, where digitization was pretty new, and like the bandwidth to carry it was probably the biggest problem. So they were very coarsely digitized. So what they actually a lot of the seismic signals looks like you know when nothing much is happening, it looks a bit like a barcode because <laughs> it's really really flat, and then something happens, and then it's really really flat, and then something else happens, and it's just uh, we can hopefully get rid of that problem. So we will, you know, we'll be able to get a slightly more sensitive signal um, just just below where we were before. So, so yeah, those are the two, the two, not even innovations, but because you know it, it's been so long since the original uh, size, you know, the, the it's original just new data. data was, yeah, new data. Yeah. Now, I understand you're also working on another one called the Lunar Geophysical Network. Tell me what yeah. that is. So that's going to be, uh, this is a um, uh, a mission which should be proposed in the next two to three years. And this would be a global mission. So you can you do the same thing as Farsight Seismic Suite, but you do it in four places. 
simultaneously with very sensitive seismometers. And uh, you, because, and also with other geophysical information like a heat flow probe. And um, so that is that that kind of global coverage means that you can answer, you know, even more questions uh, that we, we still have. But what we're one of the things that we're really interested in, both for FastSide and for Lunar Geophysical Network, is what's the difference between the near side and the far side? That the original Apollo missions were all on the near side and they just didn't pick anything up from right around onto the far side. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've always suspected that's just because of where they were rather than that there's some major difference between you know, the far side and the near side. But now we can test it. So we can see whether there's any major differences in terms of seismic activity on the far side to the near side. Uh, and we can also, because we know that the moon itself is very asymmetrical, you know, that even just looking at the surface, the surface, the far side surface doesn't have as much of the maria, which are the lava flows, which cover the near side craters. If you look at the moon from Earth, you see those really dark circles. Yes. Um, and they're the, the maria, but they don't exist on the far side. So, mm. um, they, so, so we know this you know, just from some observations we can make from orbit that there's some huge differences between the near side and the far side. So I'm really interested in how that goes into the, you know, how far that goes into the moon, whether it changes the crust or the mantle or even potentially the core. Uh, so, so yeah, those that would probably be one of the things that we're really interested in for the Lunar Geophysical Network. And the other thing is to do with, again, differences there's some regions on the near side which have very high heat-producing elements uh, where there's just a lot of heat flow coming from these uh, regions. And we think they're probably pretty shallow, but I'm not sure that we're completely sure. <laughs> so again, looking for differences between, like you, you put one of your seismometers inside and one outside, and you also put a heat flow probe in the same place and you just compare and see how deep those those structures go. So I think that, yeah, it's, it's really exciting if we can if we can get that one agreed. And, and you made that sound like that was going to be not just a NASA mission, but there were others who would be involved. Um, so some of the, this is overall a NASA mission, but some of the instruments will come from, from other. Be other things. partners involved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Um, those are really interesting missions to, to find out more about the moon. Um, I understand you're also involved with missions trying to find out about the, the seismology of Mars? Yeah, yeah. So I'm working on the InSight mission to Mars. And the InSight mission has it's a, it's a, a seismic station in a single place on Mars. Uh, it's been, it, it, it's, there's been many, again, many Mars lakes that that's kind of perhaps a slightly a smaller surprise than mm-hmm. the moonquake, but uh, you know we, because a lot of the a lot of the Mars quakes that we can see are from from a region of uh, the Cerberus Fosse region, and you know you can see those from the you can see these the the rifts uh, across Mars uh, from the satellite images. You know they're, they're like a thousand kilometers long, so. 
I don't think it was a huge surprise. Obviously, it was a huge uh, success that we were able to pick up those signals. And, you know, that again, that the noise wasn't in doing the wrong thing. Um, on Mars, the wind is a huge problem. Um, which luckily, I don't have that problem on the moon. But <laughs> right. uh, we, do have it, we do have that problem on Mars. And so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, signals. And uh, it's also been the case that the Mars, like the extended mission, has been even better than the original mission. So there's been a lot more seismic activity and uh, favorable conditions to pick up uh, these, these, these Martian signals. Interesting. Boy, with with all of the, the effort that we have going into now into Artemis programs to, to go to the moon and, and later to Mars, um, it, it, it seems to me reasonable to want to know as much more about the, the geology and the seismology of the places that we're going. Uh, is, is What do you think it is that we can learn from these missions that will inform our planning for human missions to these places? Yeah, so I think for Artemis particularly, you know, the, the shaking for one hour, you know, the, the moon quake for one hour doesn't sound much fun, and any human structures have to be able to deal with that. Right. Uh, and secondly, you know, the, the micrometeorites, one of the things which we want to do with uh, Farside is look at the micrometeorites and, you know, we know that there are a lot of them. Uh, we know, you know, they come in very, very fast because there's nothing to stop them. Um, although I think it's been estimated that the chance of being hit by something, say, like ping pong ball size is one in a million, which I think I'm sure the astronauts are kind of reasonably happy with. Yeah. There's things which are smaller um, and will almost definitely damage human structures over time. Uh, is something which you know NASA is very conscious of, and obviously any other space agencies are very conscious of to make sure that the equipment is robust to that. So I think that in terms of planning those, uh, the the human exploration missions, that's what some of the things that the seismology can tell us. To know more as much as we can, I guess, about the uh, yeah. what what the ground we build our stuff on is going to do. Yeah. Yeah, um, we can we can also we we can also look at you know the the, the surface and the subsurface. So there has been some talk of like longer term human activities on the moon in, involving something like you know lava tubes or lava pits, where these are uh, holes in the surface where you know the lava has has flowed through originally, and um, and so you. You can put your human structures in them, and they're slightly, uh, you know, they're safeguarded in certain ways mm. from the excesses of the lunar environment, and that's something we can look for on, but you know, with with seismic um, missions. Uh, so yeah, we, there is there are definitely things we can do about the structure, and and knowing, I guess, also how, you know, how solid the structure that you're going to be building on. Um, you know, we do know that there's a lot of dust on the moon, and we know like how thick that is. Right. So that's something which comes from the seismology, particularly. So yeah, that's another uh, issue which people have to consider. It'll be fascinating to uh, see what you learn from the future missions, and and can add to the body of uh, geologic knowledge of the moon. It'd be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie Nunn, thanks so much for. Uh, 
taking the time to uh, educate us about what's going on here. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks for inviting me. There is so much that has to be done to support the Artemis missions to return human beings to the surface of the moon, and this time in a sustainable way to learn more about the place and how we can live there long term and use the moon to support deep space exploration. There are new rockets and spacecraft and lunar vehicles and such to design and build and plans for and methods of establishing the infrastructure to support that human activity on the lunar surface. And there's a need to learn about that surface, the place where we plan to build facilities that will last. The hard science that Carrie Nunn and her colleagues are doing is another important part of NASA's plan for future exploration. I want to remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. In fact, you can get all the NASA news you want delivered to you every week if you go to nasa.gov slash subscribe to sign up for the NASA newsletter. You can find the full catalog of all of our podcast episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts, scrolling to our name. You can also find the other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. This episode was recorded on August 22nd, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Gary Jordan, Heidi LaBelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings for their help with the production. And to Carrie Nunn for shining a light into the dark craters of my knowledge of lunar seismology and helping us all understand more about that spot in space that humans will return to in just a few years.